I'll begin by reading a passage from the book of James. James was the little brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in James chapter 5, he wrote this. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious soil. I'm sorry. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Just a few short verses and yet four times over, be patient, being patient, be patient, patience, and twice, endured, endurance. Sounds like it's something James thinks all of us need. I know that I do. Patience. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 13. If you've been with us now, you know we're looking at some of the parables of Jesus. And we're going to look at one of the parables this morning that, in fact, the word patience doesn't show up. But I do think it may be one of the things that Jesus has in mind for us, as well as a few others. We're going to look at the parable, often called the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. It's in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. We will read the parable, and then several verses later, Jesus gives a bit of explanation for it. Verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For a while you are, for a while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jump to verse 36. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. 
And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Start like this, and hopefully you all will follow along with me. Seemingly, there's a problem. Life in this inaugurated kingdom of Jesus Christ defies expectations. Maybe not our expectations if we've been walking with the Lord for a long, long time, but we've said again and again and again that that most likely so many who were anticipating the coming of the kingdom of God were anticipating that the kingdom would come in its fullness. And when it comes in its fullness, there would be sharp distinctions between the righteous and the wicked. And that God's man, the Messiah, the one who was ushering in the kingdom would not only make those divisions, but would judge the wicked and vindicate his people and establish his kingdom upon the earth forevermore. That was seemingly the expectation. And yet Jesus came onto the scene proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, that it was here in him. And if indeed the kingdom of God was here, then in fact, where? We don't see it, at least not according to our expectations. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed in his field. In this parable and in so many of the parables, Jesus is teaching about life in the kingdom of God that has been inaugurated now with his first coming and will come in all of its fullness in the second. And so this parable, like the others, is teaching us to rearrange maybe what our expectations have been. Jesus says that the kingdom can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And he explains to us that the man is Jesus and that the good seed is the sons of the kingdom who are sown into this world. That in fact, Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose and ascended and fills his people with his spirit And they went out and began to proclaim this message. And believers, sons of the kingdom, have been coming to faith in Jesus Christ the world over now for 2,000 years. He has sown his people. In other parables, the idea seems to be the sowing of the gospel message. But in this particular parable, it seems to be that Jesus is the one who has been 
sowing his people all over the world for 2,000 years. His message going out, people believing in him and becoming disciples of Jesus Christ from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. But maybe something that would have tripped them up is verse 25. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Now, all the commentators take a look at that phrase, while, men, while his men were sleeping, and say we are not to read that as if his servants were neglectful, but simply that the enemy was stealthy and malicious. In the real world, it seems that something like this would have been done as an act of revenge upon your enemy, that you would go into his field, and while he was sleeping, you would cast the seeds of this tear, this weed, this darnel. And Jesus says that this enemy of his, in his explanation, is the evil one, the devil. While the expectation may have been that the kingdom would come in and make sharp distinctions, judgment of the enemies, vindication of the people, Jesus says, in fact, I'm going to be sowing my people the world over, and so too is the evil one. The Bible says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It, it talks about unbelievers being held captive by Satan to do his will. It speaks that Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That just as Jesus has his people the world over, so too does the enemy. One said, the parable seems to be teaching that God's work will be permeated with false plants, which appear genuine but do not produce grain. I think it's true that certainly... Satan sows unbelievers, those who do not trust and turn to the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and they do not believe the truth of the gospel. They do not believe or enjoy the ways of Christ. They oppose the ways of Christ. They oppose the people of God and the like. But it also seems that some are seemingly in association with the church, association with the people of God, association with religion, we might say. Because this is a particular kind of weed that you can't tell the difference for a while. The scholars tell us that it's botanically close to wheat, and it's difficult to distinguish when the plants are young. The roots entangle themselves underneath the ground and it grows up and the wheat and the weed look the same for a while, but eventually that wheat will uh, sprout and the weed will not and, and then it becomes clear that you have true wheat and false wheat. 
So one has said, his enemy, the devil, has likewise planted seed in the world, which grows alongside the sons of the kingdom. These appear very similar to the sons of the kingdom. Often, Satan's offspring are portrayed as fiendish, grossly immoral, and practicing black magic. Here, however, they are portrayed as religionists who appear godly and resemble the sons of the kingdom. Even Judas did not stand out among the disciples, and Jesus claimed that the pious Pharisees themselves were the children of our enemy. And so the sharp distinctions will not be made yet. The expectations that they had about the kingdom of Christ did not come to fruition. In fact, Jesus said, no, that right alongside God's work of sowing his people the world over, there will also be the sowing of the weeds, unbelievers, false believers, false religion, cults, and the like. And that God's people in the midst of that will have to endure. R.T. France commented, Jesus announced God's kingdom, and this would lead many of his hearers to expect a cataclysmic disruption of society, an immediate and absolute division between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. Yet things went on apparently as before. It was to this impatience that the parable was primarily directed God's kingdom does bring division, and that division is final. But while it is already present in principle, its full outworking is for God to bring about in the final judgment. So let's keep pressing and see where we go from here. There's seemingly this idea that we want to fix it now, at least in the story. The slaves of the landowner came and said to them, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? And how then does it have tares? And he said, an enemy's done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no. They want to fix it now. There, well, let me, let me read you this. It comes from a great little book called Waiting by Ben Patterson. He opens the book this way. I hate to wait. My image of hell is an eternity of standing in line, waiting in the lobby of some bureaucracy. My teeth clench, my blood pressure rises, my field of vision narrows, and my temper erupts. I've embarrassed my wife, my friends, and myself at things I've said and done when I've had to wait. And I'm forced to do it several times a week at supermarket checkout counters, in freeway traffic snarls, at the bank, and in fast food drive throughs These daily waits never fail to try my nerves. But there's another more acute kind of waiting. The waiting of a childless couple for a child. The waiting of a single person for marriage or whatever is next. The waiting of the chronically ill for health or death. The waiting of the emotionally scarred for peace. The waiting of men and women in dead-end careers for a breakthrough. 
the waiting of unhappy marriages for relief or redemption or escape, the waiting of students to get on with life, the waiting of the lonely to belong. For Christians caught in these kinds of waitings, the question is, how long, O Lord? How long indeed? It is a good question, a biblical question. Even martyred saints standing in the presence of God ask it. And it has little to do with how many weeks or years remain. It has everything to do with hope. It's really asking, can I trust you, God? Is there any meaning in all of this? Why me? How much more do you think I can stand? What are you doing, Lord? The great 19th century preacher Philip Brooks was renowned for his gentle spirit and enormous patience. But one day a friend walked into his study and found him pacing back and forth, terribly agitated. He was shocked. Dr. Brooks, what on earth is the matter? I'm in a hurry, he said, but God is not. Isn't that the way it so often seems to be with God? You desperately want something that you don't have, something apparently legitimate and worthwhile, and you're forced to wait for it. There's no end in sight, and the pain becomes a dull daily ache. And you can do nothing without thinking of what you are waiting for. Do you ever think that God is taking his own sweet time with you? Sometimes my whole family is sitting at the dinner table, ravenously hungry, and we are waiting for one child to finish washing up so we can say the blessing and begin eating. Then we hear him in the bathroom, singing idly, the water running in the sink as he dawdles his way to the kitchen, oblivious to our needs. Sometimes as I have waited, I have felt that God is that way, distracted and preoccupied and so wrapped up in his own affairs that he has forgotten about mine. Kingdom expectations. Jesus said, no, it's not going to go like that. In fact, it's, it's going to go like this. We want to fix it now. And Jesus says, no, you got to wait. There's a thing in theology called realized eschatology. Sounds fancy, huh? Realized eschatology. It's the, it's, it's the false idea of trying to take eschatology, the, the, the things that are going to happen in the future when Jesus returns and establishes the new heavens and new earth and there's no more pain and there's no more sickness and there's no more dying. All of that wonderful stuff and pull it into the now to realize it now. That's where the health, wealth, prosperity gospel comes from. It's a realized eschatology. It's the erroneous thought that the stuff that God is going to provide then is available now. And so we should not be sick now, and we should not get diseased now, and we ought to be wealthy now. It's a desire not to wait. It's a desire to bring it into the now. I don't hear much about it anymore, but it's the same idea of, of those who claim that a Christian can get to a point even in this life when they don't sin anymore. 
You ever heard that one? And just wanted to say, can I talk to your spouse about this? That day will come. It's part of the promise of God that we're going to be delivered from sin forevermore. But it doesn't happen in this life. The wheat, the sons of the kingdom, the tares, Jesus called them the sons of the evil one. And I'll just broaden the sermon. And, and all that that implies, they were looking for a sharp distinction. Now, judge the enemies, vindicate God's people, and let's reign. And Jesus says, no, we're going to wait a while. Get rid of my sickness now. Get rid of my disease now. Get rid of my problems now. Get rid of my frustrations now. We want it. Now, and Jesus says, no, we're going to wait a while. But it will be fixed later. And so we are to live with faith in this future fullness. Verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barns. Now, Jesus tells the story, right, in verses 24 down through 30. He tells the story, and, and if I'm reading it right, the, the word's not there, but, but the idea of patience is there. We have these expectations of what we want God to do and what he will do, but we want him now. And Jesus says, it ain't going to be like that. You're going you're to have to wait. And then this will come. And in the explanation, though, Jesus does make much of that future day. In verse 40, 41, 42, 43, he talks about that part of the story, if you will. He zooms in on the separation that will come. Verse 40, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be, it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is just another one of those reminders that Jesus Christ speaks about coming judgment more than anybody else in the Bible. And he uses some of the most <clears throat> kind of language to describe it. You and I may not like it, but Jesus and the rest of the scriptures are clear that there will be a day of judgment. God is great, and you and I have sinned against him, and our sin separates us from God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. 
And it says that it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And the Bible seems to make a clear picture from beginning to end that such judgment is right, deserved, and just. It paints a very dark picture. Before, it paints a gloriously bright picture called the gospel of Jesus Christ. That into that dark picture of sin and rebellion and just punishment and do, do, do desserts, into that comes the gleaming, radiant, joyful, loving gospel of God through his son, Jesus Christ. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God has sent his son, Jesus, into the world for sinners like you and me. And all who will believe and trust in Jesus will have their sins forgiven, oceans of forgiveness that we experience in the gospel of Christ reconciliation to him and the expectation not of this judgment but in verse 43 then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father you may have in your bible the righteous will shine forth as the sun in capital letters jesus is quoting from daniel chapter 12 where it says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's seemingly taking a look at, at, at that future day when the kingdom does come in its fullness, when Jesus does return and he does vindicate his people that we will shine like the sun. We will be glorified. The body of our humble estate will be um, transformed into conformity with the body of his glory, that we have an incredible future to look forward to. And it may be that Jesus is drawing a, a stark contrast between the hiddenness of God's kingdom now, where the sons of the kingdom were right alongside the sons of the evil one, and while our lives are meant to be distinct by the Spirit of God at work in our lives to bring forth love and joy and peace and patience and good, and all of those, it's still seemingly they're going alongside each other and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of difference, but then. Then the distinctions will be made and God's people will shine forever more. Let me give you a few things, maybe practically, for us. Three things. Number one, let's patiently endure. Again, we read from James, patience, 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 endurance, endurance. 
seems that maybe that's what Jesus is calling us to. We've got to be patient. We've got to wait. It, it won't be easy. We've got to trust and, and one moment at a time, trust God and patiently wait. Read a little bit more from Patterson here. I wrote this book out of one central conviction that at least as important as the things we wait for is the work of God, work God wants to do in us as we wait. The Apostle Paul says we Christians are people who rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amazingly, the glory of God he re refers to is the people we will have become when Christ returns. For it is God's good pleasure to one day reveal his glory in us. In fact, the pains of waiting are really the pains of childbirth, our birth. Paul says we can therefore even rejoice in our sufferings, the things we must put up with as we wait, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. In other words, God is doing a good work in us as we wait, producing in us things like perseverance and character and hope. The Apostle Peter is more colorful he compares our faith to gold that must be purified by fire. As we wait, we suffer, but this happens so that our faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Gold refined by fire, that's what the waiting is about. Picture a blazing hot forge and a piece of gold thrust into it to be heated until all that is impure and false is burned out. As it is heated, it is it also softened and shaped by the metal worker. Our faith is the gold. Our suffering is the fire. The forge is the waiting. It is the tension and longing and at times anguish of waiting for God to keep his promises. It is also the way God makes our character pure and shapes us into the people he wants us to be. I saw a man wearing a button which says, please be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. God asks the same of us, to be patient with him until he finishes with us. Waiting is not just the thing we have to do until we get what we hope for. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what we hope for. May God give us grace to patiently wait and endure. Secondly, I think we should lovingly engage. Now, this is not in the text, but maybe it's implied just a little bit. What are you and I meant to do in this period of waiting with the tares? Maybe we are to lovingly engage. Christ has planted his people, the sons of the kingdom, you and me who believe. And the enemy has planted the sons of the evil one, those who do not follow Jesus. And, and, and we got to live alongside them until Christ comes again. 
But surely maybe this reminds us a bit that in that time, we are called to lovingly engage with them, to love them, to pray for them, to share the good news of the gospel with them. Remind you that we all want to be a people who live on mission with Jesus. Right? And we, we talk about my circle, where I live, where I work, where I play, where I study. Those places that God has put us, right? Jesus has sown you into the world. And he has put you right where he has put you. And it's not by accident. It's by heavenly design. And he has surrounded you with people who do not believe. Let's love them for Jesus' sake. Let's pray for them for Jesus' sake. Let's share the good news of the gospel with them for Jesus' sake. And maybe, just maybe, it's in God's good plans to take one of those sons of the evil one, just like all of us were, and open their heart to the truth and the beauty of the gospel of Christ. And they would come to faith. So let's patiently endure, let's lovingly engage, and then third, let's joyfully expect. We saw last week about the hiddenness of the kingdom, but the fact that it's happening and it is headed towards the day of harvest. That day is coming. And in this particular parable as well, Jesus has sown his people, the evil one has sown his people, but there's a day coming when the distinctions will be made and God's people will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. One more bit from Patterson. He says that if you and I are going to faithfully wait and be patient and endure, we need at least two things. Number one is humility. Humility comes from being very clear on the fact that God is God and we are merely his creatures. We are his beloved creatures, the crown of his creation, but we are still just creatures. Humility recognizes that we exist for God's sake, not he for ours. From him and through him and to him are all things. Only the humble can wait with grace, for only the humble know that they have no demands they can lay on God and his world. Only they know life is a gift, not a right. But Then he goes on to say not only humility, but we need hope. Hope is also essential to waiting. Why wait unless there is something worth waiting for? There is a logic to the world's frenetic grasping for everything now. Not only does it lack humility, but it has given up on a future that is anything more than an extended, an extension of the present. That's a good line. Is that the way you and I think about the future? That it is simply or it is nothing more than an extension of the present. Do we hope for anything else? 
Eternity is a vague unknown. The here and now is what is substantial. The world reasons that since there is no great eternal hope to wait for, why wait for anything else? Christians are hard hit by this attitude. I know many believers who formerly subscribe to the doctrines of hope and heaven and eternity, but who live practically as though they didn't. When it comes to how they deal with a difficult marriage, failing health, or a bleak professional situation, they live as though there were no tomorrow that shines with God's promises. They act as though there were only the here and now, and they grab for as much of it as they can get. We need to be reminded of why we may and indeed must wait in humility and hope. And then the book will go on to explore both of those in the life of Job and Abraham. Jesus is always reminding us of the hope that the day is coming. Sunday school class this morning, we were just looking at uh, the book of Acts and Jesus giving those final instructions to his disciples and then he ascends into heaven and the disciples are looking at him, going up into heaven and then two angels appear. Why are you standing there looking up into heaven? He will come again just as you have seen him go. Brothers and sisters, we wait with hope. Our dreams, our hopes, our longings, we want them now. And Jesus says, no, we're going to have to wait. But a day is coming. A day is coming. Let's patiently endure. Let's lovingly engage. And then let's joyfully expect. Paul said, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. We look forward to the blessed hope, the return of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and the new heavens and the new earth that he will establish forever and forever. And I forget it. Ever and ever. Like every day, I forget it. I, I live like this is all that there's going to be. You ever think, man, I'm going to die before I get to go see that. And Jesus is up there going, you're going to get to go see that forever. It's going to be a forever in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amazing. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be patient. all that we want right now. Do you want us to go and fix it now? No, it's going to be like this for a while. It's going to be like this for a while, and then the harvest will come. Lord, help us to wait upon you 
with humility and with hope. And as we do, Lord, might we go forth and lovingly engage with those in our life who do not know the Savior, to love them, to serve them, to pray for them, to share the good news of the gospel with them. And we will wait and we will hope for the day that is coming when your people will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. We'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.